Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 39 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Johnny FD, and I'm here with Sam Marks. Hey, Johnny. Hey, guys. Welcome from sunny San Diego. That is very cool that you are now in California. We've been bouncing around, just recording these podcasts all over the world. If you guys have been listening yeah. to the last 39 episodes. Uh, today, I'm actually really excited that we are going to have on our first economist. Yeah, Mr. Harry Dent, one of my favorite economists and favorite authors. So, man, I'm stoked. I'm, I have a lot of respect for Mr. Dent, his work over the last three decades plus, uh, and really greatly appreciative that he's going to be joining us on this week's episode. Yeah, definitely. So Harry is a Harvard MBA grad, and he's been featured pretty much all over the media and, you know, big places like Good Morning America, CNN, CNBC, Fortune, Business Week, The Wall Street Journal, and now that's like a boss. <laughs> there we go. All right. A good one to add to the list. And he's the author. We've talked about his books before, but he's the author of Demographic Cliff, one of my favorite books, and also the new book, The Sale of a Lifetime. And he's also the editor of the free newsletter, Economy and the Markets. And, you know, he's really kind of the reigning expert on demographic trends and how they impact our economy. So this is really cool stuff. And I know he's found that studying predictable things that people do, like in consumer behaviors, is really the ultimate tool to understanding trends. Yeah. So in, I think it was like 1992 in his his book, The Great Boom Ahead, he was predicting, and that, and if you, I don't know if you, anyone actually remembers that decade, but it was a mm-hmm. kind of a big recession during that time. But he wrote a book called The Great Boom Ahead, and he was saying, according to demographics, we are going to have a big boom for the next 10, 20 years. And everybody said that there's no way that's going to happen. We're in the midst of a recession, and it happened. So now he's going to be calling for something else uh, from you know kind of what I've heard. So I'm really excited actually to see what he's going to predict now for our future and, and what Invest Like a Boss listeners can kind of listen to. Yeah. So just to give everyone a little bit of background, I found a paragraph in his new book. And Mr. Den, if you're listening, I hope you don't mind, but I just want to give everyone an idea of what he studies and why it's so important. And this is stuff you don't learn in school. They don't teach it in economics class. You never hear the mainstream talking about it, but demographics are so massively important to everything that happens in the world. So I'm just going to read a quick excerpt of this new book, The Sale of a Lifetime on page two. And the paragraph is says, generally speaking, we start school at the age of five and graduate by age 18. After that, many go home and on to some level of higher education and enter the workforce at an average age of 20. We get married around age 27 and have children shortly after. Start a home purchases peak around age 32 and trade up home purchase peak around 42. The kids leave the nest when we're between 47 and 54 years old. Our spending currently peaks at age 47, although for the most affluent, the peak age is 54. From age 54 to 64, we start spending dramatically less and saving more. At 63, we retire again on average and spend the rest of our lives consuming less and less by living off those savings. So this is the stuff that he studies every single day for the last 30 years. And this makes huge differences in our in our economy and our markets around the world. Uh, you know, one of the easiest examples to digest is as the baby boomers are getting older, 
they are spending less. And that has a lot of, of that puts a lot of headwind on our economy. So, you know, I, I think this stuff is really fascinating because it really challenges the mainstream and makes you think differently about, you know, what we see on CNBC on the money shows and stuff. So this is really cool stuff and couldn't be more excited to have them on the show. Yeah, that's a great paragraph. If you guys want to check out that book, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more in the outro. But without further ado, let's hear it from Harry himself. Uh, Harry Dent, welcome to the show. Guys, we're back with one of my favorite economists and authors, Harry Dent. Mr. Dent, thanks for taking the time to join us on Invest Like a Boss. Yeah, nice to be here, Sam. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I know we have a lot of big fans listening. And I, I just wanted to start by saying I had the opportunity to see you speak in Florida at a seminar. And I got to say, it was absolutely electrifying. And we wanted to recommend it to listeners if they if they ever have the opportunity to see you speak or present in person, definitely take that opportunity. And is that something that you do pretty frequently now, speaking in public and or doing live presentations? You know, I don't. I, I, I lived on the road in, in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. And, uh, you know, I focus a lot more on, on my newsletter now and communicating through those efforts because, I mean, it's just hard to travel all the time. Yeah, so I, I probably do like maybe two speaking engagements a month, but I'm usually speaking for somebody. So it's not just like at the local Rotary Club. Yeah. <laughs> well, well two, a, two a month is still relatively frequent, especially if you have to get on the road. I know I know you have a nice new home destination now. So uh, so getting getting to and from places is a little bit further. But uh, but anyone anyone out there that has an opportunity to see you speak, definitely do it. It was it was electrifying. It was an older audience that I got to see you speak at. But I was I was still on the edge of my chair. Well, you know, it, it is it is a whole different view of the economy and it's explained in terms of people and not all this complicated government stuff which mm-hmm. economists can, can never figure out so it, it is most, most people are kind of shocked when they hear it and we predict stuff we predicted stuff in the past and predict stuff out well in the future and, and you know most people are told oh that's impossible it's not impossible mm-hmm. in fact it's pretty darn easy yeah, absolutely. And we have a lot of younger listeners out there. And for those that are less familiar, I just wanted to give them a, a short background on your research at Dent Research. And I've heard you call yourself an accidental economist. Can you elaborate on on what that is and, and how you got into economics initially? Well, you know, I, st- I started off with a major in economics, but after three courses, I just decided it doesn't make much sense to most people. Economists can't seem to agree looking at the same data. And, and, and they, they even say nobody can predict the future after the next election. So mm-hmm. why, why would I want to study economics? So I studied business in all facets and was a business consultant to Fortune 100 companies, the Bain & Company after going to Harvard Business School. And then I started consulting to new ventures in California and not, not high tech, more like just everyday consumer companies. And uh, that's when I learned about the baby booming demographics. I learned about, you know, the S-curve and, and four-stage technology cycles and all types of neat stuff in mm-hmm. the school of fame before I really got, oh, the baby boom is a huge generation. This was back in the early 80s. Right. And they're going to change everything as they age. They're, they're, they call it, you know, the pig moving through the python. So <laughs> that got me the demographics. And that's where I got my biggest breakthroughs in economics. I mean, and all of this stuff has nothing to do with, with economics courses, most of it, except for supply and demand, it, it's, it's stuff that we look at people, as I said earlier, instead of government policies, people don't understand that governments mostly react to major trends created by businesses and innovation and consumers in their natural family life cycle demand. And, and, and why would you look at government? Why don't you look at the consumers and innovators that are driving the real trends? I agree totally. And, and you've been studying this stuff for almost 
four decades. Does it is it easy to find new areas to stay entertained after you've been studying it for so long? Well, you know, it, it's true. I mean, I, I, I even tell my company, I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And then, <laughs> then I find a new cycle, like the geopolitical cycle I found uh-huh. many years ago, or the, or the innovation cycle, um, or, 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 you know, you can take anything I've done and proven in the United States and, and, and take it global, and you can take it emerging countries, and that's different from developed countries. So there is always something different, and uh, now, I mean, I start out with some powerful demographic cycles that are very simple and very predictive, many decades in advance, everything from spending to inflation um, and, and, and innovation cycles and stuff. But now I have four key cycles. It did take me, you know, through over three decades to get these four that, that I think, okay, these are the four that matter and give you the whole picture. Demographics will explain about half of it and is the most powerful. But when I've missed calls, when something happened greater than I thought, or lesser than I thought in the past, I always realized, well, I must be missing something, and that's when I find a new cycle. So, yeah, they're, they're always, so far, there's always been something new. <laughs> yeah. I keep scratching my head. You know, once we got quantitative easing, I mean, this is a whole new piece. This has never happened before where governments just say, oh, well, when, when we have a downturn or a debt crisis or, you know, banks going under, well, we just print enough money to cover it over. We, we don't deal with it. <laughs> Now, and, and that has, you know, staved off a lot of things we saw coming, mm-hmm. uh, FD leveraging in, in, in a, a kind of a, an economy, deflationary economy like the Great Depression. But we're also not getting anywhere and, and we're kind of in a coma economy. And so I think, you know, you know, that I'm working on now. How, how do you predict the impacts when governments put, you know, have something for nothing economies and try to fix the economy with free money? instead of real policies. And uh, that, that's been my toughest challenge in recent years because this, this, is, this is just something on the left field. I think I saw you either state or as in one of your books that we're currently spending on average about $1.6 trillion to grow the economy at $350 billion. And just, the numbers just don't add up yeah. no matter what we, we stick into it. They don't add up, you know, but, but it's like a drug. So you can take more of a drug, uh, even though it's unhealthy in the long term and not good policy. You can keep feeling every time you come down or don't feel good. You can take a little more morphine or heroin or crack or whatever, you know, booze or anything and feel better for a while. And that's, that's the way I look at government policy today that they're, they're putting off dealing with the crisis. They're just doing what feels good today. And there is a big cost to it. And that cost will add up and, and make our economy worse down the road. And, and I tell you, I would not want to be Trump walking into this economy. Scary. I think he's yeah. going to get a big surprise. Yeah, we just we literally just watched him get signed into office about I don't know what it was about two hours ago, um, and it was it was kind yeah. of a it's a rainy afternoon in D.C. and it it just it didn't have that pop. It didn't have that that really exciting feel to it. Um, but we'll see. Like like you said, especially after reading your books, it's it's um it's it's a very eye opening way to to look at the economy right now and in in your book demographic cliff which was one of the first books i ever read on this topic and one of my favorite books because it really it causes you to think against the grain it challenges the mainstream and i really love these types of reads and one of the biggest points of that book that has stuck with me and always always stuck with me and, and challenged the way that i think about market markets is how you predicted the japanese bust in 89 uh that was almost three decades ago and what i always question is 
why is no one talking about this? Because I feel like it's so relevant to, to many of the, the leading economies of the world, especially Western economies with, with uh, demographics in decline. But you never hear anyone talk about that or relate Western countries' current position to the Japanese in, in, in the mid-80s. Yeah, I mean, they're the leading indicator. They had the, the, the baby boom generation, the unusually large come along first, create an incredible boom, incredible bubble in stocks and real estate and a debt bubble and everything else, everything that's happened in the U.S. and Europe since. And they crashed and they burned and they've never recovered almost three decades later because they have a smaller generation following a larger one, which mm-hmm. has never happened in history. And it is not as bad for the United States, but many countries especially in Europe and Southern Europe and the rest of East Asia, do have a trajectory like Japan, and, and their economies will never be the same. And nobody, like you say, nobody's looking at that and learning from it. And Japan's did what we did. Mm-hmm. All they do is print free money. They don't, they don't force the banks to write down loans and take burdens off of consumers and businesses. They don't force businesses to consolidate and get more efficient. I mean, you know, businesses going under is a good thing long term. The Great Depression was a great detox for the economy right. and all we did was grow like after that it cleaned out a lot of debt a lot of inefficient businesses and and brought everybody into reality and and you need that uh, every once in a while and it, and it happens once in a lifetime in our economy and so economists didn't see that come i was the only guy in the world everybody worshiped japan in the late days like they do china today yeah. and i'm yeah. saying the same thing about china china's getting rated a crash and burn and is over their peak in demographics they're not going to grow for decades ahead like India and the rest of the emerging world. They were saying Japan was going to overtake the U.S. economy. I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, if they make three times our income, because they were a third of our size. I mean, people just project trends in the past into the future. And every, you know, dog has a day and every country or sector or something or technology will grow for two or three decades. And then people will just think it's going to grow at that rate forever and nothing does. Everything goes in cycles. And it just, what I learned in the early 80s and beyond was that because of the first middle class, we didn't have a middle class, which everybody is mourning now, we're seen to be losing. We didn't have a middle class for all of history. We didn't have it until after World War II with mm-hmm. the Bob Hope generation. Mm-hmm. Ever since then, the average household, not only very predictable, but they have made a difference in the economy. They didn't make a difference much before. So demographics since World War II has become the most important cycle for spending, growth, productivity, um, and even inflation because people drive our economy, not government. And I I heard you mention in your presentation that, and this is more of a general economics question, that when a massive generational boom hits the workforce, like the baby boomers, or potentially even the millennials to a lesser extent, it causes inflation. But I didn't understand fundamentally why that was. Is it because they're they're unproductive, but all but then spending? Well, no, actually, the inflation comes first, then the productivity and spending. Young people are unproductive because they're learning. They cost. They cost mm-hmm. the government for school. They cost their parents to raise them. And then when they first enter the workforce. It costs businesses have to provide them with workspace and technology and some training. And I found one of my breakthroughs early on in 1989, I found that inflation actually more than any other factor correlated with workforce growth on a two and a half year lag. And workforce growth is simply the average person entering the workforce at 20, mm-hmm. taking two and a half years to start to earn, you know, 
produce more than they cost, and then they earn and spend more money into age 46. That's the spending part. So inflation came first with the baby boom. The highest inflation in history from the mid-60s into the late 70s, early 80s, and then inflation dropped off when they entered the workforce and became mm-hmm. productive. And then we had the greatest boom in history from 1983 to 2007. And, and, and again, my workforce growth, two and a half year lag, that's inflation. So I project that decades ahead. Mm-hmm. More important, I can project when a generation is going to spend more money, 46 year lag on the birth index. That simple. That would have told you baby boom, boom from 1983 to 2007, then the economy starts to slow. And it did start to slow after 2007. Right. And that's why we've been on quantitative easing, the drug, ever since to make us feel okay as we slow down. And now the, the next boom that you're predicting is 2023 when demographics significantly pick up again in the USA. Do you think quantitative easing, we know we just got pre- uh, Trump elected president. We know spending is going to continue. Do you think that this spending can get us through the next six years into 2023 when things should start to help itself? No, no, I don't. I I, I think you can only stretch an economy so far. Now we Mm -hmm. have more debt around the world, 57 trillion more than we had at the top of the last bubble. We got bigger bubbles in a lot of real estate, um, bigger bubble in the stock market than we had in 2007 when that burst and the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. Everything is stretched. And so at some point, this is going to blow. I mean, Italy is, is very close to defaulting. The rest of Southern Europe is almost as bad as them. Germany has demographics uh, as bad or worse, actually slightly worse than Japan had coming into the 1990s, coming into this decade. Mm-hmm. And everybody thinks Germany is the strongest country in Europe. They have horrible demographics. China's got the greatest real estate bubble in overbuilding of an emerging country in history from top-down government planning. Um, and that's going to blow. So, so there's plenty of things that are going to blow this. I'd say just in the U.S., our workforce growth is down to near zero. Actually, it's going to be negative for the next few years, naturally. And then near just above zero for decades after that. And Trump's saying <laughs> we're going to grow at 4%. It's impossible. And, and all we've been doing <clears throat> in this quantitative easing boom is hiring back workers that were laid off in the Great Recession in 2008 and on. That's all we've been doing. Mm-hmm. We're, we're now at full employment, 4.6% recently. We're very close. And once we hit that, we're going to go back to workforce growth, which is going to be darn near zero. So, so good luck on creating 4% growth in that scenario. And in addition to that, just like in the last generation, when a generation's moving in to its peak rate of retirement, which the Bob Hope generation was in the early 80s, and the, and the baby boom generation is now, and in the next several years, you're going to have the lowest productivity. People are dropping out, doing nothing. It's just like kids doing nothing. Well, old people do nothing at some point. And so our productivity is down to 0.4%, mm-hmm. near zero. That mm-hmm. 0.4% productivity, which is probably going to get even worse in the next few years. And on top of that, pretty much zero workforce growth. So I, so if Trump can grow the, the economy at 4%, then he's a magician. He's not a president. He's a magician. Things can happen, in other words. And it's funny. Last episode, we were talking about house flippers and driving around South Florida. It, it reminds me of being in 2005, 2006, billboards for flipping houses, yeah. commercials for flipping houses, radio shows for flipping houses. It's scary. And it almost, to me, it feels like an indicator. And I just, you know, you watch the mainstream. They're talking about this time's different. 
they're talking about debt doesn't matter. Why does the psychology just continue to repeat itself? People just have these these really short term memories and think that every single time throughout history is is slightly different. Well, you know, as long as the economy with, with good fundamentals and on top of that, which has really happened in space since Alan Greenspan in mm-hmm. the late 80s, I mean, the government makes it easy to have bubbles, easy credit, lower than market interest rates. People love bubbles. Bubbles <laughs> are something for nothing. Everybody wants to die, you know, get better, 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 die and go to heaven. Everybody wants to never have to work again, never have to go through another down cycle again. And when you're in a bubble... You're getting a bonus for nothing. You're borrowing less, uh, paying less for your mortgage and your car loans. Your, your, your house is going up twice as fast as it should. The stock market's going up two or three times as fast as it should. You're getting something for nothing. So people get high on that. It feels good. It's exciting. And they don't want it to end. And so people go into denial. I tell you, the hardest thing, I got the hardest job in the world, being a bubble basher. People <laughs> don't want to hear me say this stuff especially on CNBC and places like that, where they're bubble cheerleaders. Oh, the market's up another 100 points a day. Yippee-yay-yo. No, a smart value investor, when you see a market go this much this long, you ought to be scared to death. Most people are scared to death when the market's gone down for 10, 12, 14 years, like mm-hmm. in the 70s or the 30s. That's when you ought to be getting excited and buying long-term. This is a horrible time to buy stocks, horrible time to buy real estate. And I think these bubbles are going to start bursting this year. I give Trump about six months of a halo effect. And until these jobs, rehiring these people back runs out and then the economy's in trouble again, no matter what he does to cut taxes. This is just changing the pie. Oh, we're Mm -hmm. going to shift money from the government to people. And then, oh, we're going to cut tax rates. But, hey, we're also going to cut deductions. And they're saying, oh, our corporate tax rate is 35%. But corporations don't pay that. They have all types of deductions and stuff. We do not have the highest corporate and personal combined tax rates in the world. In fact, I've looked at it. I couldn't move to Australia or Canada or any major country in Europe and not pay more taxes. So this is baloney. This is just people that want something. And Republicans always want to cut taxes. Yeah. We already got deficits in a boom. If you cut taxes and then we also have a downturn, we're going to have runaway deficits. And by the way, the government debt, and private debt's made way larger, but the government debt since George W. Bush came out has doubled every eight years, every two administrations, five to 10, 10 now to 20. And by the end of Trump's supposed two um, administrations, uh-huh. which he's not going to get, I don't think he's going to last a year. I'm, I'm serious about this. He's going to blow something up or, or get impeached or shot or something. I don't know. But whatever, the way we're going this, this federal debt's going to be $40 trillion in eight years unless a, a kind of a crisis stops it and people get real and realize we can't have all these entitlements. We can't retire at age 63 when we're not going to live to 85 at that age. It used to be you retire in the good old days at 63 and you die in five years. Well, that's not the case anymore. Yeah. You can't work for 43 years, which is average. We calculate. This is a hard, cold average in America. And then retire for 22 years on the dole with free health care and social security. You can't do it. So so that's why we have deficits even in boom. And right now we're in the we're in the economic winter season and with Trump's policy of cutting taxes and spending more is that, is that what we should be doing in an economic winter season or is is it maybe the opposite? 
No, it, you know, it really is the opposite. I mean, what we have is, is record income inequality, like we had in the roaring 20s. Anytime you have a debt bubble and a bubble, the rich are going to get richer because they're the ones that can borrow the most. They're the ones that have the most financial assets. They're the ones that start businesses and take big risks or, or work on Wall Street, and do all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. They do better. And the average person sucks when. And that's, you know, so until you correct that, you have a demand crisis because everyday people aren't doing that well. Their incomes adjusted for inflation have been going down since 2000. So that's one problem. You got all this debt until it's deleveraged. It's a burden on the economy. The Great Depression took us from 180% total debt to GDP, private government, down to 50%. We got rid of a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. That takes a off of businesses and consumers, and it's the private debt that goes first. The government debt did better once we got out of World War II and got into a booming economy, but just the austerities of that time period caused even government to cut costs so that when the economy got better, we could pay off, pay down that debt. So if you don't go through this crisis, which Japan has not, you end up in a coma economy. Japan, since 1997, and their demographics peaked in late 96 actually a double peak, late 89 and late 96. But since they hit their final peak and went into a real clear down demographic spiral, they have grown 0% on average GDP, mm-hmm. had zero productivity and zero inflation, despite having now almost 100% of their GDP in, in cumulative quantitative easing compared to 24% in the U.S. and 36% in Europe. I mean, Japan has stimulated way more than us for way longer, and they're still in a coma economy. You can't get to the spring season, the next boom, without going through winter. And yeah. Japan and the rest of the world are all choosing, no, we won't go through winter. We won't <laughs> let banks fail. It's good to let banks fail. The strong banks take over the assets of the weak ones, and a lot of debt gets written off. That's good for the economy long term. Is it painful? Yes. Ask, ask a heroin addict going through detox. It is painful, but it's your only option. You don't get back to health without going through detox. There's no way to get back to health by taking more of the drug, and that's what we're doing. And if this is a debt bubble and global debt becomes massively problematic, deleverage written off, do you think that government bonds in Western countries like the U.S., like U.S. Treasuries, do you think those would be in jeopardy, or do you think that's a pretty good investment for for where we're at right now? In the Great Depression, it was the long-term Treasury bonds, U.S. government bonds, and the AAA corporates—the ones that never defaulted, that 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 saw it, that benefited from deflation because interest rates went down even farther. So that is where you want to be. You don't want to be in the risky assets like junk bonds, high yield bonds, yeah. stocks, real estate, especially because of the leverage of mortgages in it, and commodities, and even gold and silver. Gold and silver are inflation hedges, as are real estate and commodities, but they're not deflation hedges. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks gold and silver is going to save you, and we keep telling them. I mean, we got people out uh, late April of 2011, right at the top of silver, and, and several months before the slightly higher top in gold, and it's gone down ever since. As we said, gold and silver were in a bubble. Gold went up eight times in 10 years. That's more than the stock bubble. Yeah. More than the tech bubble. And people acting like gold and protecting, gold still has to go down to at least 400 bucks before I'll even look at it, because it would take that just to erase the bubble. Not the whole full market, just the bubble from 2005 to 2011. And that's a typical bubble. Stock, commodity bubbles tend to last five to six years, and then they collapse 80%. They don't correct slowly. They collapse rapidly, 
and they don't go down 20, 30, 40, even 50, as in the 1970s, because that was not a bubble burst, just mm-hmm. an extended downturn in generations and with inflation. It goes down 80% and sometimes 90, 89% for um, the stock market from late 29 into late 32. 89% and- drop, and then it took... 24 years to get back 24 years hold on stocks always come back uh and we've got you diversified Mm -hmm. diversification didn't help in 2008 and 9 and stocks will not come back to these levels i say in japan they'll never see a 39,000 Nikkei. never ever ever again at least as far as i live or or my kids or anybody else in the u.s may see slightly higher levels than we've seen but we're the stock market's not going to be the same because the next generation is not as large and dynamic. So 24 years in the Great Depression in U.S. stocks and in Japan, even more, right? Even longer. They've never, they've yeah, never yeah, gotten yeah, back. We're, we're 20, 20 going on, yeah, 27 years from the top in stocks, mm-hmm. 25 years from the top in, in real estate. And stocks are down, still down 60% from the top, 80% at worst, at best 50%. Real estate dropped sixty five percent in Japan and has never announced because real estate is even more impacted by demographics because real estate lasts forever. Mm-hmm. And when a smaller generation follows a larger one, you get to times, long periods of time, where there's more older people dying than young people buying. Dyers are sellers. Yeah. Young people buy between twenty seven and forty one weeks now. So so and that's that's what's happening. Real estate, even when stocks crash. They'll come back. They won't come back as strong as they did after the Great Depression or in the early 80s uh-huh. and beyond, but they'll come back. Maybe they'll get back to 2022,000 again in, in this next boom with millennium. Mm-hmm. But real estate, I don't think we'll ever see the levels we've seen in the U.S., at least not for decades, because what I call the net demand for real estate, um, peak buyers at 41 minus dyers at, at 79 to 80 in the United States, um, that trend goes down into 2039 before it turns up to a minor degree. So people are thinking, getting, I just saw somebody, I'm not going to mention the name because I know the guy, says the best thing to do is continue to buy real estate, especially when it's down. No, I don't agree. Not in this era. Mm-hmm. Real estate will never be the same. I, real estate long-term only grows with inflation. Stocks grow 7% above inflation. Gold only goes with inflation. And, and you can't rent out gold like you can real estate. So when we get out of this rare baby boom time, um, stocks are going to do better than real estate. And they and they have historically, if you go way back, and gold is the worst investment for most of the time. And Mr. Dan, I know we're coming up on time. I just wanted to close one last question. So you're calling for deflation over the next six years. And I know a lot of other people are calling for inflation. You seem to be w- winning the argument with the deflation, but do you know of any asset classes that actually work both in inflation and deflation environments? Well, almost everything goes down in both. Mm-hmm. Bonds work well in deflation. Um, that's, that's the problem. That's about it. High mm-hmm. quality, long-term bonds work best in deflation. The problem with deflation is you're, it always follows a debt bubble, which creates a financial asset bubble and in stocks, real estate, commodities, and, and sometimes more in one sector than others. When those bubbles burst, all those financial assets go down. High yield bonds, as I said earlier, commodities, <laughs> stocks, real estate. And that's what happened in, in uh, 2008 when, mm-hmm. when, when the economy really fell apart in the second half of 2008. Gold went down 33%, silver 50%, commodities were down. 
Real estate was down. Here and around the world, most places, emerging market stocks were down. Developed country stocks were down. Small cap stocks were down. Mm. I mean, everything was down. So that's the problem with deflation. It's a once in a lifetime reset in debt and in financial asset prices so we can get back to normal and grow again Mm -hmm. after a great bubble boom, 1983 to 2007 or the early 1900s into 1929. And you have to get out of the way of the bubble and in high quality bonds or just cash. Cash, yeah. The only way, the other thing is there's always a best house in the the neighborhood currency, and that's been the United States thus far. The U.S. dollar has been up 45% since the recession started in January 2008. I think it's going to go up in at least the early stages of this next deflation, and then it may just go more sideways. But the U.S. dollar versus other currencies has been a good place to be as well. But but there aren't many places, and that's the hardest thing for me to tell people. Even Mm -hmm. in the 70s, you could have been in Japan with better demographics. Commodities did well, gold and silver. Uh, emerging countries that produced uh, commodities and had good demographics did well. What you had to be out then, you had to be out of bonds, which hate inflation, and out of stocks, which hate, hate inflation. But there were plenty of places you could have been in a diversified portfolio. In the winter season, like the 1930s, and what I see coming in the next six years, you have to be in the safest assets and just preserve your capital. And by doing that, your investment power grows every time everything drops another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 percent. Mm. So 10-year cash. The same asset the dollar. So cash, 10-year bonds, maybe insurance products, uh, yeah, fixed, I, I fixed annuities and 30, stuff like that. 30 government, 30-year treasury bonds, because you're going to get a better kick out of that, a higher mm. yield and more appreciation from deflation. Um, cor- AAA corporate, and those are usually 20-year. Um, and, and cash and, and U.S. dollar. There's an ETF that tracks that called the UUP. Uh, I think the U.S. dollar has less potential than bonds at this point because the U.S. dollar's already done so well. So guys, there you have it from Mr. Dent himself, author of one of my favorite books, The Demographic Cliff and The New Must Read, A Sale of a Lifetime. Pick it up on Amazon. Link in the show notes. Mr. Dent, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us on Invest Like a Boss. Okay. Thank you, Sam. Man, that was a very, very interesting episode. That it was. That was a lot of fun. And just further reflecting on all this stuff. I mean, it's it's really fascinating stuff. And I just love I love what he studies. I love how deep he gets into this stuff. I he's just passionate about demographics. I mean, have you ever thought about demographics in terms of the economy or markets before you heard this or or read any of his books? You know, now that he talks about it, it makes so much sense, right? It just makes sense that the the more people that are spending money, the more, you know, the economy is going to grow. And if we just kind of artificially prop it up, it'll only go for so long. And now that, you know, kind of almost in hindsight and retrospect, I'm like, you know what? He makes absolutely sense. Um, But... No, like I, I can honestly say it's it's not something that really crossed my mind. I, I think almost everyone can say that, like, oh yeah, I've I've heard of that before. Or maybe, you know, that makes sense to me. But he's actually, you know, diving deep, studying, and he and he's putting his reputation on the fact that he believes in in his predictions. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, he's got a very difficult job. He's 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 a bubble burster, um, and you know, the cool thing about this stuff is. We're taught to believe by the mainstream that this stuff can all be controlled, that the Fed can control this, that business policy, that that tax regulation and all these things control the economy. But 
you know, what demographics teach us. If you study this stuff and you, you know, you, you read Mr. Dent's material, there's something bigger than the Fed. There's something bigger than the decisions that Apple makes and the hiring and firing and, and everything else. There's something bigger than the money printing. And that that's the people. It's you and I and what we're buying and what our parents are buying and all the people that go in their generation, what they're buying and the other 330 million Americans and what they're buying and across the whole world. And I think it's just super cool to take a look at these things and think about the fact that maybe there's just something bigger than everything that we've been taught. And it's right under our nose. And, you know, we just been, we passed it because of traditional education and, and watching Jim Cramer on TV. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And actually, after this recording, I went back and I watched a bunch of his interviews on, you know, all across different channels. Uh, and I realized, and, and actually, I looked at some of his older books as well. And even though he has the current reputation of being a bubble buster, he actually wasn't always like that. He was, he had the exact opposite reputation 20 years ago when he was the one kind of screaming for that there's going to be a boom coming boom, and yeah. nobody believed him. So I almost kind of feel like he's, he's more of a, I don't, either a realist or, you know, he's someone who's like very optimistic or, in either it going up or going down. Yeah. And he's very yeah. confident in that. So I Agreed. think right now, for because of his data or uh, what he knows and what he kind of, what he talked about in this episode, he firmly believes it's going to go down. And he, and his new book, The Sell of Lifetime, it's prediction that in 2017, the economy will crash. And, you know, the mm-hmm. stock market will crash, real estates will crash. And he has, I think he has a very, very good chance of being right. Uh, I, I also think that, you know, there's all these other external factors that could, you know, just jump in and it could change things. Uh, but mm-hmm. I do, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. What, like, what are your, you know, personal predictions or after listening to this episode, do you think that in 2017, there's a chance of the economy crashing or not? Man, it's so difficult to say. I think there's a very strong chance simply because of little, well, of course, reading these books and listening to Mr. Dent, but there's there's little odd things that are happening, right? For instance, like my parents and our neighbors in our house back in Florida are baby boomers and they're selling their house. And in South Florida, there's never any houses for sale because it's a really good location. And if something goes on the market for sale, it gets picked up really quick. I mean, these aren't million dollar homes. They're, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, but there's never anything. They get, they get picked up really quick. And there's like six houses for sale in the neighborhood and they're not moving. And now my parents and the neighbors are putting up for sale. It's, it's just like weird little things like that. And we talked about on uh, uh, two episodes ago, we talked about house flippers and how house flipping is at all time highs. And there's signs up everywhere for house flipping. That's really, like, that's really scary. And Johnny, I'm out in San Diego, man. Like California is insane. It just doesn't even make sense, right? Like the, the prices of houses, a, a two bedroom bungalow, yeah. 900 square feet, we're talking almost a million dollars. Like how does that even make sense? It doesn't make sense. And I think originally I had moved out of California because I thought there's no way I would ever be able to afford to buy a house there. And then mm-hmm. now that I can afford to buy a house there, I'm also almost a little bit too smart to 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 put my money in that because I'm thinking this is way overvalued. I mean, there's, yeah. there's no freaking way. And I, you know what? And I can't, I can't buy a million dollar house because I don't have that in cash. I could put a down payment on it and make payments on it, which I think a lot of people in my situation would do because that is, you know, the, the American dream. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking I'm going to put myself $700,000 in debt for a house that 
maybe overpriced. Like that's insane. Totally insane. And even the people here, they're all talking about it. And everyone's saying, you know, it can't go up much further. Homeowners, people that bought their house, they want it to go up. And they're like, it just, it can't go up that much further. I just don't know how people are getting mortgages for these million dollar houses all over Southern California. But if you think about these people that they put down maybe 10%, their house, you know, on a million dollar house, they get the house. If the house value drops 10 or 15%, you know, if they can hold it, great. But if they have to sell it, that wipes out almost everybody, right? That's a, that's a hundred thousand dollars, $150,000. If they have to sell it and take that loss, that wipes out so many people. Well, here's the craziest part is I personally know a few people like who have been through that situation, but they never talk about it because mm. it's something that's uncomfortable to talk about. They almost kind of feel like they got the wrong end of the stick or, you know, they did something wrong because they had bad market timing and they didn't do anything wrong. You know, everyone who made money from their house that bought lower and now their house is worth a lot more, they brag mm-hmm. about it all the time. They're like, oh yeah, you know, real estate's the greatest investment. Look at my house, you know, that's already gone up 30, you know, 30% in value. But you, I guarantee like there's an equal amount of people who lost 30% or more or mm-hmm. even lost their whole house and they just never brag about it. They never talk about it because it's, it's shameful. Yeah, totally. And you know, going into some of the other kind of key points of the book, not to get into all the details, but, you know, a lot of the books talk about a reset. And then we start looking at the price of everything is is just going crazy, like college tuition, raising a kid, home prices. Everyone's in debt now, you know, like back in the 1920s, it was enough for just the guy to work, the wife to stay home. They had enough money, you know, to work just the guy would work nine to five. They had enough money to to live a nice life, save money. Then in like the 1950s, they couldn't save any money anymore. So if they wanted to save money, you know, the woman had to go into the workforce. And then after, you know, into the 1970s, like that was no longer enough money. So they couldn't save. So they have to start taking on credit. And now like everybody is in debt, you know? So it does make sense when we talk about like a reset. I mean, housing prices, it just, it doesn't make sense. It needs to be a reset. College prices, you know, people go into debt for their entire life just to get a college education. Like there's so many things that don't really make sense. And I'm, I'm not making a prediction here because I'm not nearly as intelligent as some of the people like Mr. Dent are that have been researching this stuff for 30 years. But I can definitely say as, you know, as a, a citizen and someone just observes a lot of different markets around the world, you know, as much as you travel, Johnny and I travel, like we get to see a lot of things. There's a lot of things that, that just, they don't really make sense. So I think anyone that wouldn't read this stuff and, and understand it, you know, at least reading one or two books on it, I think is really doing themselves a disservice because if nothing else, you don't have to reshape your entire life around this stuff, but you need to arm yourself with this viewpoint and this study. It's study. It's not really, it's not really a prophecy or prediction. It's just studying demographics. And I think if you study it, you can learn to read indicators. You can be a little bit more observant, a little bit more aware when, when you're, you know, going about your business and making investment decisions. You know that you made a really good point about we have a kind of a almost a unique or almost an unfair advantage from having a bird's eye view of not living in the U.S. right now, where we can you know go back and more just you know even just kind of seeing what our friends are doing, what our family's doing, what the economy is doing, you know, what mm-hmm. media is reporting, and we can look at it from kind of a like a bystander's point of view and not being so immersed or invested in it and think that doesn't make sense. 
versus if you are in the middle of it, if you are living there and you have, you know, you know, you have a house that you're paying a mortgage on, you have a job and everything's kind of like already set. It's, mm-hmm. it's really hard to have that, that point of view of just saying, you know, what, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be too invested. I'm just going to, you know, take a look at it, you know, take a step back and look at it from, from there. Yeah. Um, another, another thing under what you say from like just living outside the U S and I don't, what I don't think a lot of people have the perspective of is what's happening in Asia. China is insane, right? Like the property prices there are just insane. I mean, there's the, I know people that have owned property over in, uh, let's see Shenzhen, Chicot, and the property prices have gone up like 15 times in the last six years or something like totally insane. So you have these, these condos, but there's the, but the renters aren't there. So you have these condos there that are selling for four or $5 million, but they can't even rent them out for $2,000 a month. It's totally nuts. So I, I, I'm glad that Harry Dent kind of mentioned China a lot. And he's talking about that, not just the, the U S economy. I firmly agree that China is effed. Like it is yeah. so screwed there for, for so many reasons. And I mean, just, a, just a couple that, you know, really kind of illustrate my point and why I would never invest a penny in China is because number one, people, the, the wealthy in China, they don't want to invest any money in China. Yeah. You know, all of them, as soon as they can, any way they can, they get their money out of the country. They go to Canada to buy real estate. They, you know, they go to the U.S. if they can. They just want their money anywhere, and their money is almost like the Chinese RMB is almost so useless that they'd rather buy overpriced real estate in Canada or the U.S. that they haven't even seen than keep their money in in RMB or in China. Mm, I know. Yeah, it's crazy, and and I'm guilty of buying China RMB at the absolute strongest it ever was when it was 5.97 <laughs> against the dollar, right? I was definitely and, sorry to laugh. Why were you buying Chinese uh, RMB? It's, it's disgusting. Uh, I feel horrible again. Like I keep, keep having these moments of clarity on these podcast recordings where I'm like, oh, I forgot about that terrible investment. Uh, you know, up, in, up until that date, the, the RMB had appreciated I think it's like two or three percent every year against a dollar for over a decade. And it just I'd spent a lot of time in China. You know, at that time, I wasn't really thinking of bubbles or I just saw China as a very well operating machine with smart people that are just hardworking as hell. And after we sold the business, you know, I wanted to get out of a U.S. dollar to take, take a little uh, currency hedge. And it just made sense. Like, you know, I spent a lot of time in China. I can have, you know, maybe money in Chinese money to uh, RMB to invest in or spend. It had been growing for a, a decade more at two or three percent. And you know what? They give you a really good uh, fixed deposit savings on my, on my RMB. I'm getting like three percent a year just by holding it in a bank, which you could never do on a U.S. dollar or, or a major, you know, Western currency. So I just thought it made sense. And since that day, I kid you not, I will share a graph. But since that day, it has done nothing but go in the opposite direction. Uh, so now let's see it: five point nine five. It's now what about almost seven? Like six? Let's call it six point eight. So that's. 10, what is that? 15% or more? Okay. So that 3% that you're making on it is not covering your loss. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious actually. Cause a joke about it. I'm I'm making 3% on a year to lose like 10% a year at this rate. So, um, but I don't know what to do. You know, do I keep it? Do I, do I take the loss and get out? I mean, if, if what you're talking about and 
Mr. Dent's projections are right, then it could go a long, long way. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm really going to pull Sam Mark's <laughs> suggestion and, and say, let's just make a trip to China, blow it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. I could probably pick up something pretty cheap there pretty soon. But you're right, man. What you said about smart people leaving China, my old manufacturing partner in China, he's trying to get everything out right now. He's looking at between Canada and Australia. Um, so I think what you'll have is a major brain drain because you're right. The, you know, the people, they don't trust what's happening there and they want to get out and you know hedge their own bets. So yeah, and just to give people a, a very easy example of what we mean by people not trusting what's going on there, people in China don't trust anything in China, and for good reason. The the here, here's the, the problem with China, and not to get too much into history, but in 1949 when they had the the the, the civil war and the communist one, they went into you know 10, 20 years of famine and. And the reason for that is the government that went in with under Mao, he, he all he wanted was economic growth. He said at any mm-hmm. cost, I don't care if ninety percent of our, our peasants die from starvation, give us, you know, their pots and pans, um, so we can melt it down to to make arm you know, to make weapons and armor, um, you know, in case in the next war, you know, and then the the next stage was okay, now we want economic growth. We don't care if we destroy the environment, you know, the people are, you know, are are you know all, all the bad things, and that mentality has kind of stuck along with even the the business people of today. And yes, there are tons of brilliant you know uh, business people from from China, including mm-hmm. you know people like Jack Ma. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are very altruistic and just good people as well. But there are also a lot of people that grew up with that mentality of saying money is the only thing that matters, and let's screw as many people as we can to get that. And one mm-hmm. thing that it happens very regularly in China are, you know, are products, you know, even like food products that are just like things that you would like, you would not expect. Like a big headline was fake infant milk. And yeah, like, who would do that? that? <laughs> like who would make fake infant milk that is just basically poison that'll kill babies just so you can make what twenty dollars a bag selling this instead yeah. of making a normal you know profit of you know of five or ten dollars, and that happens with things like cooking oil where people when I was in China and this is actually one of the reasons why I I never you know even if you said Johnny let's go let's go to China let's make a trip to you know Shanghai or Beijing and let's let's have a party for a week and you know blow all this cash I wouldn't go because when I was in Shanghai which is their you know, their nicest city, you know, their kind of most Western, most developed city. Yeah. Every time I ate any food, regardless if it was at a five-star restaurant or on the street, I was thinking, I hope this isn't recycled gutter oil that is, oh. you know, is like this. I, I don't even want to describe it because I think it's going to put people off that are listening. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's like cooking oil is not that expensive. Like why, why are people making fake oil just to save some money? And, you know, and and then endangering people's health and people in China, especially if you're wealthy and you're you know and you and you and you're in the know, you see this and you're like, I don't want this crap for my family. I'm gonna get my money out of here. I'm gonna get my family out of here. I'm gonna get my business out of here asap. Absolutely, and I mean, we think about just <laughs> the pollution that's happening all over their big cities now. And I've had, you know, I've, I've definitely had some of my best experiences in in my life. Certainly arguably the best 
experiences professionally just by going over and, and, you know, building out manufacturing and stuff was an incredible experience. But I've been in the ER room three different times in weird, weird places. I mean, places like you read in in, you know, you see on TV and like locked up abroad and they ended up in a hospital before they go to jail or stuff like that. Like I've been deathly ill, uh, and totally vulnerable. And it's, you know, it's from eating whatever. I have, I have no idea McDonald's and stuff. And on your point with the, the fake goods, I know in, in Shenzhen where we were, if you bought chicken, the first thing people would check is if there's a bone in it. Right. And if there's shrimp, they would leave the tail on the shrimp purposely to prove that it was a real shrimp because they, they could just make this stuff. Right. And it, I was like, is that real? Like people actually make fake shrimp and yes, they do. <laughs> like they make fake chicken, fake shrimp. I was just blown away the first time I saw all that stuff and it always stuck with me. So, you know, who knows what, you know, this, what may happen if China, you know, if China falls like a house of cards that could drag down, you know, that's such a big market. It could drag down everyone along with it. And there's so many, one thing I've, I've learned recently is that in big downturns in real estate, the first pe- people to leave, the first people to get out are the foreign buyers, which I, I didn't actually know that that was true. I may have thought that foreign buyers would hold on because they have, they have extra money and they're, you know, they're more liquid and they can hold on to that. But foreign buyers are the first to get out. And we know how many Chinese, Asian buyers in general have bought in Vancouver recently, the whole West Coast. So if China falls like a house of cards, then potentially you start having a lot of sale, uh, a lot of supply in Vancouver and the West Coast, and then that that could potentially trigger something. But we don't know, which is why it's just important to read this stuff and learn what the indicators may be. I can definitely see that. So let's let's talk about what we would actually do if this did happen, because I actually think the one of the best things about this podcast is that we're we're starting it, you know, at a time where there's economic growth, the stock market's going up, and be very easy for people to just to you know put um, you know thirty percent of their income into an index fund and say, oh yeah, it's been growing for yeah. the last 10, 20 years. Let's just leave it at that. But I think you know the reason why guests like Harry Dent are so important is we can kind of see both sides. And not just get too comfortable and just say, oh, yeah, you know, stock market's always going up. Let's throw our money in there. Because I, I think 100% we will have another downturn. I don't know if it's going to be in 2017 or 2020, it, but it will happen definitely in our lifetime. But I, I would be willing to bet it's going to happen sooner than later. And I think that's the hardest part is if let's say we are too conservative you know, and we think it's going to happen next year and it doesn't, or we have, you know, and then it, it, then it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. We lose out in opportunity, you know, costs where yeah. the money that we could have invested that, you know, five or 10% we could have made, we might've just lost just having that center in our bank. But if we do believe, you know, it's going to happen or, you know, it does happen, then we potentially can save ourselves a lot of money mm-hmm. or, have the cash to be able to make ourselves even more than we could have made if we had invested now. Yeah. I mean, you can potentially make a big bet on this. Um, everyone's got to analyze their, their situation totally different, right? I mean, my advice to maybe my parents would be different than my advice for myself or you, Johnny, and everyone just needs to take a clear look at everything and figure out, you know, where they want to position themselves. And so yeah, I'm, let's, I'm curious. Let's, 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 let's talk have, about this. Yeah, so this is fun, it. right? Yeah. yeah so okay. what what would what are you gonna do? Right, do you think it's gonna happen 
Uh, what are you going to do to prepare and what would you do if it did happen? Okay, cool. Awesome. All right. So this is what I'm doing just because of not necessarily because of what we're talking about right now, but because of a few months ago when I, t- I told everybody I liquidated my brokerage account with UBS, just because of that, I liquidated a lot of cash or I raised a lot of cash. So I have a significant amount of cash right now, at least for me personally, compared to what I usually have. Um, and I'm just, I'm holding that in cash right now. So the, when it goes into like brokerage accounts, let's say right now I have E-Trade, I have Vanguard, and I have, uh, what's the other one? Wealthfront. So the scary thing with that, that is that if this stuff's right, and what happens as he predicted in Japan in 1989 happens to us, that market never recovered, right? And as we talked about in the episode in, in the Dow Jones in 1929, it took 24 years to come back. So I know you and I, Johnny, when we've been talking about how, how our portfolios previously, we've always been like, you know what? We'll never sell when it's down. If, if we have a big downturn, it lasts four or five years. It's okay. You know, it'll come back. It'll a dollar cost average at lower, at lower values, lower prices. It'll come back. We'll hold on to it, but that's not necessarily the case, right? It could, it could go down and it could stay down. It could stay down for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Or if, if you're in Japan, you know, you never, you haven't made that principle back since 89. Most people that were investing then are dead or, or retired and, and maybe, maybe still hopeful. So with that stuff, I'm not personally doing anything. Uh, I have, I've put, I've moved a little bit of money more into treasury bills, uh, and some bonds, but I'm not really touching that. What I'm focused on is, right now is protecting a little bit more of the downside, which I think I've actually done a pretty good job um, over the last six months since this, this podcast. I put a lot of money into annuities. If this happens and we go into deflation like Mr. Dent, Mr. Dent predicts, then annuities would actually do really good. If you're getting 3% and we're in a deflationary zone, that's, you know, that could turn out to be a very good investment. Uh, but what I'm really looking, looking at right now I'm in San Diego. I'm in Manhattan Beach. I'm looking at property. I'm going through San Diego. I'm going through Manhattan Beach. I'm identifying my favorite streets. I'm even in some cases identifying my favorite house. And I'm just kind of sitting tight. I'm not I'm not making any other crazy investments. Uh, I'm not planning many new investments in 2017. But my big my big opportunity will be if this stuff happens and real estate takes a 25, 30, 50% dip, I'm going to go pick up, you know, my dream house basically. Okay. I think that's a great idea. I like that. I mean, you say you keep your money in cash, you know, are you just rolling around briefcases full of hundreds or, you know, do you have another checkings account or where do you have that cash? I've spread it out in different banks. Um, and we talked about this on the episode with, with, uh, Dr. Daniel Crosby and I do that for a reason for a lesson I've learned previously with, uh, with a guy I know that, that lost a lot of money in bank of Cyprus. Um, and you know, it's another, it's another risk. It's not one that a lot of people think about, but it's certainly risk. And if, again, if this stuff happens, if we go into a big depression, even another recession, if we have banks closing down like they did in 2008, cash bank is not necessarily safe. You have to be very, very careful and again, spread your risk out. So yeah, I've, I've got it in just checking his account essentially and just spreading it, you know, spreading it as, as thin and across as many, uh, many, many different accounts as possible. Um, that's a very good, very good idea. So, you know, yeah. for everyone listening, if you guys have more than $250,000 in any one account, spread it out. Maybe put it into a, a different account. And maybe mm-hmm. while you're at it, take a look at some of the higher interest savings accounts if you're not going to be touching that money anyway. So, yeah, Sam, is that something, that something that you should be doing? Yeah, I've, I've got, uh, I've recommended before GS Money Bank. 
It's actually Goldman Sachs now. It used to be General Electric and they pay 1.05%. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not tied up. It's not like a fixed deposit. It's just in there 1.05%. Uh, so I recommend that. I, th- I think that's the best you can find anywhere right now, at least in the USA. And it's really, you know, you can, you can move it around. It's, it's the best bank that I've come across. So I, I really like that one. Um, uh, but that's, you know, that's pretty much it. I don't, I don't put too much weight on there. I just like having the cash accessible and, and at least in a bank that has somewhat of a, a name. Yeah. <laughs> so how, I, I definitely how about you, agree. Johnny? So I think for sure, if something's going to happen, uh, I'd be willing to bet in the next three to five years, something's going to happen. It could happen next year. I, and, but here's the thing is, I think there's so many unpredictable factors as in, you know, maybe there's a new technology that comes out. Maybe another yeah. country drops the ball. Maybe, you know, uh, we go to war and maybe the war actually stim- stimulates our economy again. I mean, do, sure. there's so many unpredictable factors that I don't want to gamble. Right. And I, right. I think that's, that is the whole point of investing smart and is not, you know, not just gambling. Mm. But I also kind of, I'm looking at the, the upside benefit of having more cash on hand. If things do drop, then I can actually buy, you know, I mean, that's the title of his book, right? The sale of a lifetime. The sale of a lifetime, yeah. Is instead of me trying to make five or maybe, you know, if I'm lucky 10% on my money in the next couple of years, if I held that money, instead of me kind of losing, you know, let's say 30, 40%, if it does drop, I can just buy that 30, 40% discount, mm-hmm. which is like it's just instant gains right there. Uh, so I think what I'm gonna do uh, is because I, I I also don't want to miss out on the upside. I'm still gonna mm-hmm. continue to put in money every single month into my Knicks funds and into my other investments. Uh, I still like things like you know Pure Street and Fundrise, where mm-hmm. you know there's a potential you know upside, or you know, especially with things like Pure Street, where I'm getting a monthly interest check. And I yeah. know that's you know pretty locked in. Uh, what I've done is I've upped the LTV ratio. So like the loan to value where instead of it being like the minimum, which I think was the 20 or 25% where they needed mm-hmm. that as a down payment. I, I upped that up a little bit to like, I think maybe 25 or 30% where mm-hmm. now if the, the real estate, you know, market does crash, at least I have a bit more value in the home than I did previously. Yeah. Smart. I like and that. I'm also keeping more cash uh, in the bank now, so uh, I, I, I am I, I should look into uh, something with but interest because right now they're just sitting in you know like a Chase account with with zero interest and a B of A account which has zero interest as well. Um, I'm not too worried about that because I don't have that much cash yet. Mm-hmm. But my goal, my my plan is to spend this year just making as much money as possible, keeping my expenses low. Uh, and not bumping up my my monthly investments along mm-hmm. with my income growth. I'm just going to keep it the same. I think I'm right now I'm putting $3,000 a month into index funds. And mm-hmm. I'm going to continue that just because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, it, yeah. I mean, for all we know, it's going to go up for the next 20 years. And I would have just uh, missed out on all this, on this potential mm-hmm. growth. But just like you, I want to be able to buy, you know, real estate at a discount or stocks at a discount if it does come out. So cash is king. Um, that would be my recommendation for everyone listening is try to have at least $50,000 in cash somewhere in a bank, if not more. Yeah, totally agree. So if this, if we get a sale of a lifetime, Johnny, you mentioned you would be buying, 
all types of things, right? Everything's on sale. Let's say the, the whole world goes on sale, real estate, stocks, private companies, you know, so many people with small businesses, drop shipping stores, and lots of other things that are profitable. And if, you know, we, if we get this sale a lifetime, people panic, they want to sell things at a discount. What would you be, what would you be looking to buy? Would it be your dream house or, or just something purely on an investment side that you're looking to make money? Repoed Lamborghinis. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even think of that one. Why didn't I? <laughs> so definitely not. Um, I think if, if I learned anything from Rich Dad Poor Dad is to buy assets and not liabilities. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't buy my dream house either. I think if I was married and I wanted, you know, I didn't care about it as an actual investment. I just wanted to live somewhere, you know, for mm-hmm. the next 20 years, I would buy a house. But if I right now I'd rather buy investments. So what I would buy ideally would be maybe an apartment block where I mm-hmm. can have have that be cash flow positive because what's great about recessions is rent doesn't actually go down by very much, if anything mm-hmm. at all, because when people can't afford to buy houses, they still need a place to live. And mm-hmm. even though the house itself or I mean the apartment, you know, building costs less to buy and maybe even operate. You can almost collect the same amount of rent because there's so many people that you know need to rent. Yeah. So that is a big reason why I want to have cash, and that's something I would definitely buy. I would also buy stocks just because there's there were so many millionaires and billionaires made you know during like the Great Depression when the stock values dropped, and because I'm still young and I can hold it for you know twenty thirty years. I think that would be my golden ticket into, you know, the the, hmm. the hundreds of millions if if mm-hmm. I can if I can buy if I can buy enough of it at a discount. Ah, boy, we can dream. This is fun. This has been a fun fun episode. I, you know, everything that we learn about is the a smarter way to invest. How to squeeze a little bit more percentage out of your investments. How to think long term. But if you don't think about this stuff, if you don't think about the downside, if you don't protect against the downside, you know you're doing yourself a disservice, and ultimately you're going to get hurt at some point. I like it. So if you guys haven't checked out Harry Dent's new book, The Sale of a Lifetime, it is. I want to say it's basically an updated version of the Demographic Cliff. Uh, I've read mm-hmm. part of both books. And they're very similar. So, you know, you might as well read the newest updated one, the 2017 version, which is The Mm -hmm. Sale of a Lifetime. Yeah. And he'll send you a free copy. Uh, We'll leave a link in the show notes. Take a look at that. And I will also definitely recommend if you haven't read it, although there's a lot of overlap, like you said, Johnny, uh, Demographic Cliff. Big shout out to my dad if he's listening because he put that book in my hand about four or five years ago, maybe even before, uh, when I was heading down, I was going down to do a backpacking trip in Central America. And I took this big (laughs) hardcover demographic book down with me, a demographic cliff book with me. And it was like the biggest thing in my backpack, but I read it and then I reread it and I absolutely loved it. So glad, uh, glad I got that knowledge early on. And, um, and yeah, definitely recommend those both to any of the listeners out there. So, that is very cool that he is willing to send uh, all listeners a free copy of his new book, The Sale of a Lifetime. Go ahead and go to investlikeaboss.com and click on episode 39. And in the show notes, we'll have a link to where you guys can pick that up. Um, thanks again to Harry Dent for being on the show. And to all the people who have been leaving these amazing five-star reviews of the podcast, you guys are the reason why we can get these big name um, guests like Harry Dent on the show. 
and it's 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 amazing. Um, I'm I'm taking a look right now at his conditions at for for the um, for the free book. I, I think mm-hmm. you guys have to maybe pay for shipping, and it's it's something to do with his um, his newsletter. Yeah, I think you sign up for the newsletter course. and then you get get the book or something. Yeah, like that. so so make sure you guys you know read read the terms of it before you guys actually sign up to see if that's actually what, something that you guys want. Or you got you, obviously you can just click our Amazon link and buy the book from there if um, if you'd rather just pay for it. So uh, who do we have for this week that has left a review? Oh man, we got a bunch, but let's go with I got T Roll Express. Oh, that's the title. Okay, Peanut seventeen sixteen from the United States. T-Roll Express, five-star review, a blast to listen to and learn from these two regular guys in their 30s trying to figure out the best way to invest their hard-earned money. Johnny's enthusiasm and Sam's humility after hitting a home run in business make this a different kind of investment show where they're learning right along with their listeners. Good guest, good humor, and personal antidotes make this a fun podcast, even for a guy like me who's 20 years older than the host. Keep it up. I love it. What does T-Roll Express actually mean? I'm curious. I don't know. I was trying to figure that out. I thought you might know. Well, Peanut, thank you for that yeah. awesome review. Uh, if someone knows what T-Roll Express means, please let us know in the show notes in the comments <laughs> or in the Boss Lounge. Uh, so I also want to say thank you. A bit bit of a Jankrova to our mm-hmm. Polish listener, Piotr Go investing distilled for people five stars i'm lucky i discovered this podcast i used to spend hours trying to figure out figure it out investing uh, out myself now i can just focus on what i do best five stars and i think that is kind of the the biggest point you know for this podcast is for us to kind of do a little for you guys because I mean, I, I think you guys can can hear it in our voices, uh, but especially with Sam, he loves this. He tells me that this is like his his business and his project that he looks forward to most every week. And even if we were never to make a dime from this, I think we would both still do this because first off, we learn so much from it, and it's it's fun. Um, yeah, but, it's fun, yeah, and, yeah. and it's fun, it's, and it's fun realizing that there's just so many people, millions and millions and millions of people out there that are just as confused about this stuff as we are, right? And we're learning. I mean, the amount that we've learned in the last year of doing this, not even year, six months. I mean, my financial literacy is totally reformed just from this podcast and reading, you know, a few books on the side. And um, so it's good to, to know that like we're in a community with so many people that, you know, we're not, we're not outcasts because we don't understand what they're talking about on, on CNBC. We're, you know, we're all in this together learning and improving and, and perfecting our, you know, not perfecting, but, uh, protecting ourselves against bad investment advice. Definitely. And if you guys do want to support the show, uh, if you guys want to buy any of the books that we have mentioned on the show or we recommended or any of the, even any of the services that we've, we've, mentioned if you go to investlikeaboss.com slash resources or just click the resources button uh, all those links there are going to be our affiliate links where we get credit for referring you either to amazon to buy the book or to you know um, whatever the services such as fundrise or uh, any of these guys we also list the, you know the ones that they don't have affiliate programs things like vanguard but mm-hmm. because we believe in it and it's something that we have mentioned the show we have it there anyways just as a one-stop resource for all of you guys uh, so thanks again sam it's been fun and i hope uh, everyone enjoyed this episode Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. 
Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.